0: Wendy, when did you begin LA for Hire? I began LA for Hire in 2008, um, and it was I was thinking of at the time moving back to New York, where I'm from, and I was having drinks with a girlfriend who works in media, and she said, "You know what? It's 2008. The banks had all crashed. Nobody was hiring, and uh, everyone was cutting back." And she said, "You know what? You should do consulting. You're kind of like you're like LA for Hire." Uh, You know, you know, you've been in the business for working at studios, Disney, Sony, Universal, you know the players, you know how to navigate. I think you'd be a very valuable resource for people outside of, you know, the business and who are looking for connections and to package projects and so on. And um, I was like, that sounds good and I was taking a subway uh, to where I was staying and by the time I got up. out of the subway, I had a. I thought, okay, I'm starting a company called LA for Hire Consulting, and I envisioned my logo and I started brainstorming about the services that I would offer, and that's how I started.
1: This was a subway in LA. Oh, or- in New York. In New York. In oh, okay. okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if you were taking right. the LA Metro. So. Yeah.
0: So, what was your first step in starting it? My first step was talking to um, industry colleagues and saying, "What do you think of this idea?" The notion was for production companies or producers who might be, um, you know, not with studios and had material looking to how do you or if you're a screenwriter how do you get an agent? Um, How do you get to if you don't know people how can you get your material seen? the for production companies uh, that might be having cutbacks that they could hire a freelance executive someone who knows the players who knows how to understand script development who is competent when it comes to working with writers and helping uh, implement notes Uh, if there's open writing assignments contacting the agents telling them the nature of the project uh, discussing Preparing writers' lists, directors' lists, and so to really be a conduit uh, for companies that might not be based in LA and might not have those relationships.
1: I think you'd said in another interview Mm -hmm. that you know you'll have people come up to you on set when you're working with one client and say, you know what, Wendy, I I like what you're doing. Um, I do this, and I don't, you know, I have a script, but I normally am, you know. A grip or something. Uh, can you help me? What are some of the things that people normally have trouble with that aren't used to being sort of in the development part? Right.
0: Well, I think the first thing is really knowing and understanding what um, ha- a good script is. Uh, a lot of people will write a script and they may go through a couple of drafts, and I think that um, they they don't have a full understanding or appreciation of what it really takes for an executive to decide that they want to recommend it to their boss, for a uh, producer to option material, for a studio to decide to finance it. And a lot of times there are really great ideas with stories, but at the end of the day, it's, is it well executed? It can, there've been times for myself as a producer where I've heard a concept and I say, oh my god, this sounds amazing, I want to option it. Then I read the script and the characters are not particularly well developed, Uh, the dialogue might um, be very what we often people will hear comment um, among executives, it's on the nose or it's expositional and it just then requires too much development to get it to a place where it needs to be that it winds up being a pass. Now, unless um, it's based on source material, uh, such as a graphic novel, a book, an article, and sometimes you can use that to sell a project without a script. Um, But it used to be from the time that I started in development um, about 20 years ago, dating myself, uh, it was easy to sell log lines. Uh, There was just much more financing of development and because of the economic changes, uh, studios are not de- uh, financing development at all the way they used to. Is that post 2008, or even even before? Post 2008.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think you said to in an article. Yeah, I know you've written a lot of fantastic mm-hmm. articles on. Is it Script Magazine? Script magazine's and mm-hmm. Writer's Digest. And Writer's oh, yeah. Digest. Okay, great. So two excellent sites um, about how there's different skill sets for above the line Mm -hmm. versus below the line
0: and they're both equally important but can we just define what some of those skill sets are? Sure. So um, above the line which is what I've been involved with is uh, finding the material. So whether it's optioning a true story, life rights, book, original script um, and then uh, Getting it ready to start making submissions, uh, identifying who the right buyers are, understanding the market, knowing that Netflix and HBO and Showtime buy certain kinds of projects, whereas NBC, ABC, CBS um, have um, different mandates, and the and same with uh, feature companies like Fox Searchlight. Is more akin to independent movies whereas if you look at most of the studios doing they're doing tentpole movies or franchise films you look at Disney where they're primarily doing um, you know Star Wars uh, the Marvel Universe and um, their own um, IP or crown jewels uh, the classic fairy tales and the um, so the um, above the line is taking the material and identifying the right home, the right buyers, attaching directors, actors, um, and assembling your crew. The below the line are the nuts and bolts people who make the movie happen. People with uh, you know, the skills um, so whether it's your boom operator, editor, uh, cinema photographer, um, and have a completely different skill set, uh, which I—I I mean, when I look at great cinematographers or any cinematographer, I'm amazed at how it really involves engineering and artistry, and it's beyond my comprehension really how they do it. So, there's yeah different skill sets.
1: So we always hear every good entrepreneur always yes. asks the question to themselves, what need am I filling? Right. In the marketplace. So, with LA for Hire, when you had that sort of epiphany moment on the subway, right. what what were you thinking the need is that you're filling?
0: The need definitely was. Um, I found myself when I was a development executive. I'd been uh, started out as a creative executive um, for a producer at Disney, and then um, I worked at Sand Dollar, which uh, I felt very fortunate to work there, it was one of the biggest management. Uh, companies in Hollywood and we had deals at Universal and Disney and I always loved working with writers and they're different executives that have different strengths and I found that working with writers and helping them bring out their best work um, was constantly feedback that I would get uh, from the writers I was working with and just loved that process so much. And then when I was on my own in between jobs and my friend had suggested, why don't you do consulting? And as it was, I I, I kept getting people coming to me for um, advice with their scripts and how to make it better. And so I just decided, all right, well, let me turn this into a a, a real business. And the other need was definitely when I looked at uh, companies uh, producers, filmmakers, uh, all over the world. Uh, that, like, I had a friend who was a producer in Germany, and he spoke English fluently. And he asked me for help on a project where he said, "I need to know how to talk to the agents." And it wasn't that he didn't speak English; his English was perfect. He said he felt like he didn't know the right way to pitch things, the kind of buzzwords and so on, to get taken seriously and so on. So that's another thing I do with my company, I coach uh, uh, emerging filmmakers or it can even be uh, prof- existing professionals how to improve um, the, the way they present their material. And I had also noticed many times that uh, a writer might pitch an idea and it w- doesn't sound that interesting. So I'll start asking questions and as I start to pull out more information I go, ah, and then we put a different spin on it that can convey the idea more strongly. So a lot of times I feel that writers can undersell their property. They don't have the right kind of um, spin to communicate. And this is another thing. Writers because they live with their characters, have lived with their characters for years and, you know in the process of writing months they know their characters so well that there sometimes is the uh, unconscious feeling that when they're writing something on the page or giving a log line that we're going to know all the um, you know the the, the the dots between or the, the connections between the dots. Um, so I think it's an important process for, writer, producer to be able to um, find the best way to articulate their concept obviously but because uh, they might have a great idea and it, they might not be communicating in the best way possible. And the other thing is um, with companies let's say in Europe is understanding who are the are names that really trigger movies in terms of you know, actors, um, Because a lot of times people will mention names and they don't necessarily, even if it's a wonderful actor who's well respected, they might not trigger the sale. It might not be a name that's meaningful to a Netflix or um, or Fox Searchlight and so on. So that's one of the things that I will know. And the only reason why I will know is because I'm in constant contact on a daily basis with people who know a lot more than me. So it's not that I'm so you know, brilliant or uh, you know, that it's rocket science, but it's being able to have access. I feel like every day I'm always learning more from people who are more in the know than I am. It's interesting what you say about communication. I know mm-hmm. this is a little bit of
1: a tangent I'm going off on, but I just read an article about managers and ones with high IQ versus ones with maybe more of a normal IQ, mm-hmm. and how the ones with a high IQ actually were more off-putting. And they didn't realize Mm. that about themselves. Mm. So it sounds like with sometimes just the communication and it's not it's not maybe that they were even coming across as well I know more. It was just their communication style Mm. was different. And so people couldn't relate to it. Mm. So it sounds like too with writers, because they're so internal, they don't maybe they they just need, yeah, just how to speak. A little bit of Mm. an
0: objective uh, you know, point of view, uh, because it is very internal. You're living. It's, and I know for myself when I'm working. I also manage a few um, select writers, and when I'm working with them, they'll often say, "Okay, I need a fresh set of eyes." And if I've gone through multiple drafts, I'll get to a point where I'll say that um, you know I want to give a, show this to an industry colleague, um, or let's you know get a reader who I trust, and let's get their their thoughts. Um, I think we all need, at a certain point um, an objective uh, set of eyes to look at material. And the balance of course is being able to do that without losing yourself and your core vision. And I think one of the things you and I had talked about was the notion of um, if like you're looking for a, a mentor, is it good to have someone give critique of your project or not? Um, I say absolutely, but it should be a respected professional or someone whose opinion you really respect. It can be a friend who is quite intelligent um, or has a good sense of story. But um, the you know, definitely don't protect yourself by not asking someone who may not have your best interest at heart and would just criticize to be critical. Sure, sure, and
1: I actually want to ask you more about that later in terms of
0: also to someone that might be
1: too nice because they don't want to hurt your feelings, but it ends up hurting you in the end. Just just real quickly, Wendy. I mean, I know why I love uh, Mm -hmm. watching writer Q and As. I find Mm -hmm. writers fascinating. What is it about writers that interests you so much?
0: Oh goodness, Um, (laughs) I would say maybe from the time I was a child, um, I just loved stories as a way of immersing ourselves into um, another world. Uh, I think also any kind of problems we as human beings have, or children, when you see another character going through something difficult, there's uh, an empathic connection that you make and that you can vicariously experience what they're going through. A lot of times, I think it, it can be therapeutic and healing, uh, and I think that is the magic of great films as well as great literature. There's it's um, connecting to the the universal themes um, or what uh, I mean. Carl Jung talks about uh, the collective unconscious, and that uh, and I know that when a lot of people will, will speak about. The importance of films that you can reach such a huge audience that ranges for, you know, ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic. uh, A great case in point, Um, I have many favorite movies, so I don't want to isolate this as my favorite of all time, but one of my favorite movies I felt was so powerful was The Wrestler. And I said, okay, what does. an upper middle class you know, young woman from New York have in common with a wrestler. I don't even watch the sport, um, nothing. But that character's plight, the way he was an outsider, the way he had regrets, the way he wanted to fix some part of his past and mend his relationship with his, uh, with his daughter um, was just so moving and so powerful. I mean I found myself at the end of the movie crying. So I love that about movies and I love that writers can create whether it's Aaron Sorkin who is such a master of dialogue to uh, Guillermo del Toro who can create such an extraordinary immersive world. Um, it's uh, just the magic of storytelling you know? um, and I'd say really being able to um, vicariously experience someone else.
1: I love The Wrestler. I want to watch that now. Yeah. You've, re- you've re- reemerged. <laughs> yes. as this, I want to rent it again. Yeah. yeah. How does a writer know that their screenplay is ready for market?
0: Is a very good question. Um, I think the first thing, it's just really essential that um, a writer submit it to colleagues for feedback. Um, and uh, I mean, I am a professional in this field. A lot of times, um, I, even though I am not a writer, I write treatments. Um, I work with writers on treatments and Bibles and so on. And at a certain point, I'll go through multiple drafts. I have a good built-in sense of editing. But at a certain point, you know, I might think, this is great. And then I'll send it to a trusted colleague, whether it's another Executive at a production company or a writer whose opinion I respect, and they'll come back. and I don't know if they'll what my my ass if I can say that, but they'll come back with feedback and go, you know, the 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 treatment really isn't getting interesting until page two, so I would cut out the first page and a half. And you know what? It's so, and um, it, it it's. Um, it makes it better, and there are also, I think, are times where, if it's someone who's opinion, um, you know, you need to really stay centered and on point. And I something I definitely feel strongly about for writers is that, um, especially in the notes taking process, because let's say a writer sets up a project with um, a production company, studio, or network. And they give notes. One of the worst things to do is to constantly be defending your position. Um, and producers and executives will start to feel you know what? Life's too short. This person isn't receptive. They're not fun to work with. They're not getting it. They love everything they're doing. You know what? I'm not going to renew, or we're going to replace the writer. Um, the best way for a writer to be able to take notes is to be totally open and receptive and to try to hear, like, what almost like with um, a, an, a, a second sense of what the executive is trying to say. So let's say they say, um, uh, let me just think of an example that um, I don't think a character should, you know, say this line, they sound kind of mean. Right here, and I don't feel. And then the writer, if you're listening rather than just defending it, you say, "Oh, that wasn't my intention. I was, um, I meant that he was being defensive and a little bit sarcastic, but he was kind of trying to say it in a charming way." So then the executive would say, "Okay, I get it now, but that wasn't coming through." So then the writer can see that their intention. Wasn't coming across so that they will go back and tweak it a bit. Um, so again, I think it's very important to stay like you know true to your voice and not just like roll over if someone says, "Okay, well we have a um, an 85 year old protagonist um, and she has dementia, um, but um, I decided that I like everything else about the story, but let's turn her into a 13 year old now." And believe it or not I have heard of (laughs) situations not too far removed from that. As a writer I think you need to defend your position and why it was essential to the story that that character um, was 85 with dementia. Um, That might not be the best example but it's basically a balance between Maintaining the integrity of your vision because you can't just roll over for everything because then you wind up with nothing and you compromise artistry and any kind of creative vision that you have. Um, but anyway, in terms of a, a writer knowing when a project is ready, um, I think that I hear a lot of writers when I'm working with them, they'll say, well, there's always going to be improvements to be made. I think when you are Working with people whether it's um, a strong script consultant uh, development executive uh, Friend who's maybe a writer whose opinion you respect development executive assistant to a producer assistant to a writer director and so on someone who's really experienced with reading material and knowing what studios want um, that when it gets to a point where there's less and less notes and the collective feeling is, yeah, there might be some work that still needs to be done because there always will be, but it's good enough. And for me, the bar of what's good enough is the character that's, um, that's well-developed, um, that's really coming through, even if they're maybe um, irascible or somewhat unlikable, that they, we still can have empathy for that character if they're a villain, it's still good to have some empathy. Not always as important, um, but for your protagonist, there's been a, uh, a distinction between sympathy. What they might do doesn't have to be sympathetic, but you should have a degree of, of empathy for them. And um, so, um, I think it's um, it's really when you're when the feedback comes back pretty consistently. That this is good, and you're not just looking for your for validation. You have to be, you know, really open. I
1: almost picture it like the kid in the class that finishes the test before Mm -hmm. everybody else and walks out, and everybody looks around like, "Wow, how'd they finish that so fast?" Mm -hmm. Can we take that same analogy with a new writer, who kind of says, "You know what? I just want to get my work out there. I don't really need all these drafts. I know this is good." Right.
0: Um, you know, it's possible someone might be a savant of screenwriting and able to do it. Uh, every great screenwriter that I've seen, and the ones who get the all the awards, um, they always say that it's taken them 30, 40 drafts. Uh, there's a top, top, one of the most powerful showrunners in television history, and she said, and this might be an obvious. Thing to say but she said you know a lot of people say they want my life but they're not willing to put in the hours and the blood, sweat and tears. Um, I have a, another friend who is a sh- top female showrunner and I know the hours that she works and it's not a 40-hour week. Sometimes it's an 80-hour week. Uh, she's there's, She loves her job um, and she on weekends sometimes she'll be there. Um, Till midnight on a Friday and Saturday, working you know eight to twelve hours, and and then the weekdays. So um, the I think you know look Mozart. I think wrote his um, uh, you know amazing uh, compositions, um, and he was somewhat of a savant. So I think it is possible, but um, I think something that gets in the way is. I understand the enthusiasm and excitement to want to get your script out there, but there can be maybe either naivete or hubris. Um, and I've noticed a lot, there are times when the writer's more, and it could be the same with an actor, that they're more focused on the end result. And I know for me, as a producer and executive, I'm focused on the end result, there's nothing I want more than a movie to get made. Uh, it is the greatest high after you've gone through all this work and seeing it come to fruition and seeing the set designer create the sets and your actors you know, actually performing the lines and the scenes. But if you look at every wonderful writer, director, filmmaker, actor, the trajectory of their careers they started out like doing little bit parts and movies that you never would have thought they would wind up one day getting an Oscar. Um, so it's that each step is a is a part of the, the process of the journey. Um, I used to say whether like it's someone like, Catherine Bigelow, you know, when she started out, or Patty Jenkins, for example, when Patty did Monster, and I, I, think she had gone to AFI, she just kept doing good work. These are people who just kept doing good work. I don't think that, um, you know, Patty Jenkins thought when she was at AFI, oh, I'm going to do an indie film called Monster and get an Oscar um, for the leading actress, and I'm then going to go and do. Wonder Woman, um, superhero, and be the first woman to woman to you know break all box office records as a director. Um, Barry Jenkins, when he did Moonlight, I don't think he was doing it because he thought, "Oh, I'm going to get an Oscar." I think he wanted to. He was compelled to tell a story, and he told it beautifully, and it affected and resonated, you know, with so many people. So I think the most important thing. For writers, directors, actors, is to stay committed to the craft and just doing the best work that you can and surround yourself with people who can give you really constructive feedback, even if it's not always what you want to hear. Um, but to be open to feedback that can be constructive and make you a better writer.
1: Do you think that's a factor of age? Do you think younger people? Really want
0: to rush through it, or it's not about that? It, it could vary. In my experience, it's not about that. Because I know um, older writers who, um, you know, they feel like um, time's not on their side, so that they actually, in some ways, can be in more of a rush than younger writers. That's true, yeah.
1: When you see a writer that you know that they do have talent, you can see that it just maybe needs a little more refining, and you need to slow them down. What are some of the things that you do?
0: Dr. Um, I don't like to ever feel that um, I'm in the position to like slow someone down. Most of what I do is um, just ask questions. Um, if in the script there are plot aspects or character behavior that's not clear to me or confusing or inconsistent, I'll just ask a question and I always tell the writer that they never to feel compelled to agree with me. It's not a dictatorial thing, but it is for the purpose of I feel I'm a pretty good barometer of what other how other executives are going to respond to material. And if it's not clear to me, then there's a good chance that it might not be clear to someone else. So they don't have to I never feel like I want to impose something to be done a certain way, but I will raise a question or I'll say, I feel that this dialogue it doesn't feel authentic to me. It feels like there's an agenda the writer has an agenda that you want the character to say this, but I think if we're really looking in the scene and a daughter is responding to her mother, how might she really respond? And I'll ask the writer to go back and kind of try and find the truth rather than the written agenda, if that makes sense. So so I think it's really more about asking questions and pointing out areas that can be improved rather than slow down. I'm like if you think it's ready to go and you're happy with it and you don't agree, then by all means you should pursue that. But I think a lot of times uh, there can be a tendency to take something out too hastily.
1: And Do you think people are aware of that? how damaging that can be because if they get consistent coverage? It just kind of like labels that one project or even their name as as not ready or yeah
0: And I'm getting uh, let's say oh yeah, because here's the thing is So you have a lot of people writers will be focused on networking, which is great networking is important Let's say you meet someone it's a producer and they say great send me your script and it's not very good you have a frozen moment in time to have that capture that person's attention and if they don't respond to it or they have an assistant who reads it and says because a lot of times that is what happens and says it wasn't very good, the next time you want to get something in they might not be as inclined to, to reach your work. You know, um, tell them it's a pass. We, the past, the writing was just not up to snuff, it was very amateurish. The person doesn't even know how to write a script to be honest. Uh, there's certain things that there's classic formatting, but there's also certain telltale signs, such as if there's dialogue on a page that takes up half a page or almost the whole page. That's a telltale sign of, with exception, of course, there are always exceptions, but that would be a sign that it's uh, an amateur. If there's uh, pages in a script that are so dense that it looks like a novel, that would be another sign if there's like page after page of, in, of very dense descriptions that will wind up in, um, in the recycle bin, or trash in the, your computer. <laughs> so.
1: Let's suppose I'm at a
0: networking event
1: or I get invited to a great festival mm-hmm. and it's a mixer. So someone says, hey, so you write, may I see your work and I know it's probably not ready. What's the best way to let them know that where sure. I'm not hurting their feelings, where oh, they feel sure. like I'm it's not? sure. Great
0: question. I would say that, oh, that's fantastic. Can I get your card? Uh, I'm, I'm doing revisions and I'd love to send it to you when it's ready.
1: Oh, so just and can I them drop out. you
0: an e- you know can I drop you an email as a reminder when it's ready? Sure, that'd be great.
1: Oh, great! So you're not waiting a year for the revision; you're keeping them in your mind or in their mind. Sorry, right. you're, you're saying
0: hi. I met you, you know, and thanks. Exactly, you again. and you know what? It could be a year if that's if that's really what it takes. Uh, to me, it's ready when it's ready. Um, So, and to be, I met you a year ago at the at Sundance, and I mentioned a sci-fi one-hour drama that I have, and I finally have it ready, and it's been vetted, and. Actually, I don't even know if I would go into all that detail. But said, I mean, I, and here's the brief premise. Very, very briefly, executives don't want a whole big um, description because they also can be liable. They don't want to hear ideas in too much detail because they're not allowed to accept them for legal reasons. But if it's someone that you have met, and just to give them a refresher, this is the sci-fi one-hour pilot about uh, an alien who comes to Earth and... <laughs> Can I send it to you? And they'll either respond and say, Great, or they might say, No. Uh, That also, there's another subject, which is uh, submission release forms, because a lot of executives and agents will not take material without a submission release form, unless it's being, if it's, this is if it's not being submitted by an agent or manager.
1: Interesting, yeah, I wonder if people really understand that when mm-hmm. people see and I've seen it on, on tw- people's Twitter bios I do not take you know mm-hmm. I, I see it all the time so I, and I, for a newbie I, I do think they realize the implications and, and how it's a turnoff to when someone says no like that there's reasons why right It's not because they, are, they they don't think your idea is good it's because they're protecting themselves
0: right so then there are ways around to try and bypass that. And yeah, that would would probably fall under a whole conversation about networking and submission policies.
1: But but for someone to respect that when they see that someone says we do not take blind submissions, okay?
0: Yeah. Well, a good counter can be, um, I'd be happy to sign a submission release form, and as I say that, my. Uh, you know, d- uh, disclaimer is that as I'm saying this, I am not an entertainment attorney. Sure. So, whoever may be listening, if you get a submission release form, you I advise you to show it to an entertainment attorney. Sure. Uh, and it is up to you to decide whether to sign it or not. But that is a way around um, uh, that legality of them not wanting to accept it at all.
1: I saw you write something about dull bits in a script, oh. and I'm curious what that means.
0: Yes. Uh, Hitchcock has one of my favorite quotes, which, and now let's see if uh, for all of those who are Hitchcock aficionados, uh, forgive me if I don't have it exactly right, but it's something to the effect of movies are exactly like real life, but with all the dull bits cut out. And essentially, if you think about films, you are lying. Mo- movies are lies. So let's say you're doing a story about Helen Keller or Abraham Lincoln and let's say the, the span, whether it takes place over a year or takes place over a lifetime or 20 years. We're seeing a two-hour movie, generally speaking, an hour and a half, two hours, a little more. It's a consolidation of real life. So you have to cut out the dull bits. So this is also, I would say, a common mistake that I, I see with uh, writers: is that the need to explain the entrance into a scene and the and leaving. We don't need to see characters uh, walking into a door, walking down the hallway, unless, of course, it's very purposeful, like you're doing a thriller and someone's walking down a hallway and. There may be someone in another room that they don't know about so it's very purposeful. But we don't need to see a character entering and saying, hi, oh I just came in from the grocery store. We don't need to play that scene out and then see the character say, okay I'm leaving now. I'm exaggerating a bit but there there are scripts that I've read where uh, every scene practically starts with the character entering and exiting. Another example would be if we see uh, a husband and wife and uh, they are heading to the in-laws. We don't have to see them get in the car, put the kids in their little, you know, in the seat belts and baby seat, drive the full distance (laughs) obviously uh, or even part of the distance and we see them. Get out of the driveway. Walk up the door. Ring the doorbell. So that's an example of you cut out deliberately those dull bits. Uh, law and order. Sometimes I'll say to writers, think of the law and order edits. So you may have a scene where uh, uh, one of the you know one of the detectives says, "So, do you know about? Uh, have you ever seen this victim?" Um, You know what? The last time I saw her, she was partying with her friend Jesse. Where do you find Jesse? Oh, she's always hanging out at such and such club. (laughs) Boom! We're at the club, and sometimes we might pick up a scene mid conversation. So that's one example of cutting out doll bits.
1: That's a great analogy. I like that. Do you think people get
0: some of that confused with novel writing? Yes. Okay. And even in novels, you don't always have you know characters uh, entering and entering, but uh, exiting. But in with novel writing, one of the things that you can do is get fully inside the head of your character. So she's walking down the street and she sees a leaf, and um, it reminds her of when she was young. This is like in Faulkner and um, lost her virginity and. We don't have the luxury in scripts. You can of course do well fantasy sequence or flashback but generally speaking you can't do, go on And you can't just like in a book you can describe smells in a movie. You can't really describe a smell you could say that uh, character burns toast and there's smoke coming out of the toaster but um, so it definitely has to be much more economical. And one of the things I said a lot, I was an English major, uh, one of my greatest teachers was Shakespeare. And when I say that is that, uh, of course I had wonderful teachers who were guides, uh, but uh, one of the greatest teachers is reading great authors, great screenwriters, great playwrights. Uh, I talk about a lot of times um, with writers giving them feedback about, Not writing with exposition. Harold Pinter is a master of subtext. I recommend uh, Matthew Weiner, *Mad Mad Men*. Characters rarely say exactly what they're feeling. Uh, There's so much subtext, and it just makes the writing that much more powerful. Do you think the the lost art of of novel reading will come back ever? I I don't know if I feel it's that lost, even though Barnes and Noble, sadly. Is you know closing and uh, but I I think there are just so many wonderful books out there and I know so many people who are in book clubs and J K Rowling, bless her. I mean she is responsible for getting more people, more children into reading and there's so many great authors out there and of course as we know books are a great great source for uh, for movies. Hollywood loves intellectual properties. They like source material. Uh, it's another uh, a strategy sometimes with screenwriters. They have a script and it's well written and it, they've been having a hard time for whatever reasons gaining traction. Sometimes um, they may turn it into a, a book. And if the book starts to get traction, then they sort of reverse engineer and go back and then sell it as sell the script, sell the book. And the script based on the book.
1: Scripts are just awful when the writer tells you everything.
0: Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think oh, a friend of or- mine oh. said that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, who, uh, she's not a screenwriter, she's not a producer, she has been in the business a long time as a unit publicist, and she, she has exquisite taste in films. And I remember asking her, because I was asked that for I think a topic of an article, and I said, "What would you say is one of the things that makes has made you want to get involved with a script, and uh, what do you think makes a script really good?" And our, what came out of her mouth is, what makes scripts awful is when characters tell you everything." So examples are if a husband and a wife, let's say a wife. Saw her husband having lunch with another woman that she didn't know about. And he comes home from work. He's like, Hi, honey. How's your day? And she were to say, What she'll probably say in real life is like, nothing. With that kind of, you know. Um, I mean, Matthew Wander is a master of like, the subtext. Uh, in, I recommend looking at just about any episode of Mad Men. But um, much less interesting. So, or she might say that the husband comes in and says, What did you do today? And I was in a similar situation once with, and I did not say, I saw you with another woman having lunch today. I wanted him to, like, I wanted to maybe catch him in a lie. I said, um, Or actually, like, well, I, uh, you know, what did you do today? And he said, Nothing special. Really? Did you have lunch somewhere interesting? (laughs) What are you talking about? Like maybe one of the things that I love is that if you really play along with that you can also play with the audience in terms of them thinking, oh yeah, he was having an affair. Then we find out that it was um, an interior decorator and he was surprising his wife by he just bought a, a little vacation home and he was making sure or he just like was renting in Malibu a place and he wanted to make sure all the stuff was special for their anniversary. And then what can happen is if she keeps testing him and testing him and, and she like starts bringing up old stuff about how he pisses her off, that scene could end with him not telling her what the surprise was and the couple deciding you never trust me. You know what? I was going to do something nice with for you and screw you. Um, I want a divorce. I'm just spinning here and I'm not saying that that's the the greatest scene but (laughs) that's an example of when you play with subtext versus characters saying everything that they're thinking. Another example if you take Streetcar Named Desire with Blanche and Stanley and Stella and if you had Blanche saying, well… I really have been working as a prostitute, and I'm depressed, and I have nowhere else to live. Game over. Like not very interesting. So if you think about it in those terms, um, yeah, it's um, and it's really reflecting how people are in real life. People don't always say exactly what they're thinking and feeling.
1: Oh, not at all. Yeah. But that's what makes it so interesting too, because like you said, going along on the ride. wondering will there be a raised eyebrow that will reveal something or…
0: Exactly. Versus because then it just has like this flat tone and it really doesn't replicate human life and I feel like that's one of the things that I was saying earlier when you would ask what I love about movies is that we can vicariously put ourselves in the other character's situation and we can say I've been in a situation like that. I didn't want to confront my husband if he'd been with another woman, uh, and so on and so forth. So,
1: or that, like, if you can tell sometimes if there's like gossip or somebody says something about you, so they come in. How are you? Oh, exactly. (laughs) Yes, and And you know they want something from that statement.
0: (laughs) And then we can immerse ourselves in the, the feeling of the person who is suspecting that maybe they were talking about her but they're not coming out and saying right. it. So I think that's such a good point that you bring up is that it really engages us so much more And because um, that's a comment that I said a lot, you, you want to be engaged. I mean, Good writing, good script, the scripts that command attention is w- with an extraordinary capacity to engage your reader uh, and that's usually through really smart dialogue. Like the like what you were talking about.
1: You talked about two scripts that don't propel the character forward. Mm -hmm. So can we can we have maybe some examples of ones that would and then ones that don't, or just some
0: themes? Right. Um, Well, gosh. Okay. Breaking Bad is such a, a great example of an escalation of situations and. So I would say that's the character. Every step that he takes, there's a consequence, and it leads to another, and another, and then the character might try and get himself out of it, but it's 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 kind of like the notion of Macbeth. Once you create or do something bad, it is it has its own momentum. Um, the I. It's hard to say without really doing specifics, but basically every scene, you want to feel that you're advancing the story. You're advancing the plot. Even if a character has a setback, that there's still it, it, there's still one of the, I guess best ways to think about it is that there's the core spine of the story where a character, primary character, or you may have an ensemble, but that each has a goal, that there's a primary objective that the character is trying to obtain, and the obstacles that get in the way that prevent them from that, and how they, even if it's a step back, but then they're still trying to overcome that obstacle. Um, there are, I mean, most movies, successful movies, follow that formula. I hate to say formula because I don't like to think being formulaic Um, and an example really where stories are not propelled forward is when I think the writer loses focus, that the focus is too diffuse and one of the common uh, reasons for that would be when there are too many characters. When a writer is introducing so many characters that rather than get to know one or a few really well. We're getting glimpses of all these different characters, but none of them because they don't have time to develop them particularly well, and so we don't have a core sense of what a character's primary focus or a group of characters' primary focus and goal is. What are the obstacles that get in their way? So I think anytime there's a really diffuse focus, then scripts don't—they wind up just being very dispersed, and rather than having a through line. How does the lead character's arc relate to structure? Very good question. Uh, When people talk about structure, a lot referring to the classic structure that we'll hear in Sid Field and Bob McKee, uh, and I think both of those writers, uh, their books on screenwriting, I think are really, I think every screenwriter should or aspiring screenwriter should should read those books. Uh, The question about structure, you'll hear okay, there has to be act one, act two, act three, an inciting incident. Sometimes writers get so bogged down with, oh no, I've gotta to adhere to to these. They're really guidelines and it's really beginning, middle, and end. When you think of Act One, Act Two, Act Three, I know some other people are talking about seven and eight act structures and so on. But really with the story you wanna have it can you take away all of the terminology, you're really looking at a beginning, middle, and end. The character, you're usually starting out with a heroine or hero, and that they have a strong uh, emotional want. I think it's very, that's really how we usually get engaged, whether it's the heroine in the Hunger Games, she wants to protect her sister and save her sister from dying. Um, you know, in these these crazy games, and then she, the the journey, the path is very clear. She wants to survive and live, and in the process, make sure that other people she cares about don't get hurt. The and then we have so many obstacles along the way because uh, at every twist and turn, there is something, some element uh, going against her, threatening to destroy her, to kill her. So she's. that's a very physical type of obstacle that she has to continually try to overcome. Uh, a movie that I loved in terms of its character arc and maybe it's an oldie but goodie is uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. You had the char- character who in the very opening you see that he has a father who uh, is a drunk womanizer. Doesn't appreciate his son at all, doesn't think his son's going to amount to anything. When he tells him that um, he's enlisted, he, I think, makes fun of him what you think you're a man now. The whole movie is really about a guy with so much armor and bad attitude. When he first gets to um, training camp, uh, he doesn't share with other uh, of his um, bunk mates, other soldiers, and He's just really not a, a good guy. But we know that deep down inside, he's carrying all this emotional hurt. And we know that he really does want to be better and not wind up like his dad. And then you had the amazing performance by Lou Gossett Jr. Um, as his captain sergeant who winds up breaking him down. So you have a character trying to better himself. And then and uh, finally when he's broken is when he starts to become a better guy and becomes an officer and a gentleman and winds up with a girl uh, and so on. But usually there's a character flaw or vulnerability and we see that getting chipped away and chipped away until they're healed and that also applies in uh, romantic comedies as well. And I can think of a couple of examples, whether it's proposal or something about Polly, where um, you know the Ben Stiller character is very anal, and uh, the last thing he wanted was the Jennifer Aniston character, and through that relationship, he winds up becoming less uptight and really capable of loving.
1: What about in the wrestler? Going back to that. Oh, it's such, just, such a. Well, that's a
0: film. see. Not that's a really good question. Not every movie has to have this um, like huge um, epiphany or growth. Uh, the I'm trying to think on um, the I. Uh, I think the wrestler is thinking of something about Schmidt. Uh, I was thinking also of. Um, Fellini's movie La Strada with Anthony Quinn where the character is in a relationship with um, uh, This woman that he totally takes for granted and the oh, it'll be a spoiler alert but the (laughs) end of the movie we see a man who really is broken and realizes that how That he really is all alone. So maybe there's a sense of growth or victory in the triumph of awareness. Uh, Very quiet kind of arc in something about Schmidt, the Jack Nicholson character is looking for connection, looking for connection, reconnecting uh, with family, friends, whatever he he has left since his wife died and realizing a sense that his life has really passed him by. And at the end of the movie the child that he was trying to be a pen pal with finally responded and it was so touching because it's the notion that all we all want is love and here that he was finally developing a relationship and a love connection. It was so small but it was meaningful. Um, And the wrestler, what was so sad was that he really, he messed up. He messed up connecting with his daughter, and the only place where he belonged was the ring, even if that was going to be where he was going to—it was going to kill him. So um, it just—but you did see a character who had a, a strong emotional want, and I would say how structure, in terms of beginning, middle, and end, relates to a character's arc is starting out with their strong emotional want. What are the obstacles along the way? In the wrestler, the obstacle was that he's been a screw up. uh, Certainly, as a father, he's the obstacles are he's no longer he's older and been through a lot in battle in the ring, and that he the obstacle trying to reconnect and get a daughter who he really abandoned to love him, and then he gets in his own way. But we're sustaining. This character's emotional want, he has a setback, and so on. And we see it through to the end, whether they wind up satisfying and learning or wind up um, going down, and we just get a glimpse of their humanity.
1: Wendy, we had this comment come in a couple days ago on YouTube, and the viewer asked, What should writers be concerned with when revising their second or third draft of something?
0: Really good question. Because um, I know like, we all talk about a first draft, but invariably the biggest part of writing your script is the rewrite and the rewrite and the rewrite. I think the biggest danger is, we'll put it this way the purpose and the benefit is that it's going to get clearer and crisper and better and tighter. So the danger is when you lose sight of what your core vision is. Now there are two ways this can happen. First if you haven't never have had a strong core vision to begin with then each draft the goal should be to refine what that is and maybe the writer needs to do an outline first and be really clear and uh, I do recommend I think Blake Snyder has a very effective beat sheet. Um, that's a useful tool and again I tell writers that use it as a general guide and a general map but don't feel that you have to adhere to like oh I've got to insert this moment at exactly this page or try to contrive things. You must be organic to your uh, follow your own organic process. The Another thing just with like about rules and following formulas, i like to use as an example when you see a great prima ballerina like I saw many years ago um, uh, Makarova who was one of the preeminent ballerinas when I was growing up and she, you know that she practiced her bars and she knew her craft but when she got on stage you then abandon it, it becomes second nature that you should know your craft but that you can be free enough to let them use flow through you. If you're so manufactured where you're trying to hit every plot point and you're writing from that place, you're not going to have the magic and the kind of flow that a writer needs to have to really create magical characters and dialogue and story. Uh, So, But it's helpful to have this map. So this is for a writer who might not have core vision to begin with. For most writers they do have a core vision of their piece and the danger becomes when you lose your center and you start listening to you're like a weed in the wind uh, that you keep swaying. So uh, this person said I should do this so I'm going to do that. This person said you keep going just in too many different directions. It is an art to be able, art or order a balance, to be able to take advice, feedback, suggestions from other people, let it go through a sieve or like filter. And something that occurs to me is to maybe approach the advice the way they make recommendations with meditation. When, you're, when thoughts come to you, uh, it's not that you're so rigid about I can't think any thoughts. I can't think any thoughts. So the same way you're not being rich that I'm not going to take anyone's suggestions and you're not saying I'm going to take everyone's suggestions. You, okay, let's see, this was a good idea. I'm going to let that percolate. This idea, I don't think it really fits in with the vision. So I'm going to put that one aside. I'll re-examine it just in case there's something there I need to look at. And there are others that you may go, oh, this person, they don't get it at all. Maybe I'm doing something that's not making it clear enough, but I don't don't think they're the right person to give me advice for this. You You can't be a pleaser where you're trying to please everybody. But generally speaking, if there is valuable feedback, then to take it in and put it through your own filter and process and see how you can address. So the biggest danger is losing sense of self and trying to please everybody, and then you wind up with mush, and that's nothing. It's neither here nor there. And there's no vision. Um, so, can we just define? Core so vision. vision um, here would be a really good example. I had a client who uh, had a a one-hour drama that was inspired by his life experiences. And he had a really, really interesting story based on his profession. And he sent me the draft, he had told me the logline and what he had done. And then I read the draft and I was like, this doesn't sound at all like your story. And he had changed the protagonist to a woman which can be fine but there were… It felt so manufactured and contrived. And so I just said a very innocent question, I said I'm really curious because what you had pitched to me based on your life experience was so fascinating and riveting. And I felt like and that's what really interested me about the idea for this pilot. And I didn't see what I know of you, I didn't see any of you in this pilot whether it was a male or female character. And he told me that he had taken a number of writing workshops, where or script coverage services, and certainly there are good ones out there. But one, they said, you should change it to a um, a, a female. You should make the protagonist a woman, not a man. Uh, someone else said, oh, you should give her this backstory, and you should give her. Uh, such and such kind of relationship with her mother and with an abusive boyfriend and it became so far removed from what i thought was really the core vision or essence of the story that he wanted to tell and he let go of that and came up with something that and i he said i didn't even want to write this but i thought i, sh- I you know that these were people who were telling me that i that i should so That's when I think you need to stick with your core vision. That would be an example. It's a great place to start on we talk about being able to
1: take constructive criticism and not being defensive and being open to the notes. What if people are giving you super nice feedback about things and it feels disingenuous and you're not sure? Is this just a person that's trying to please me? Mm -hmm. It doesn't even have to be a family member or a friend.
0: And how do we see through that? It's a good question. Uh, I think one is to say, when you're seeking constructive criticism, because it is coming from a, I, I mean, I, this is how I like to give notes. And if I'm asking someone to evaluate something for me, I may say, I need you to be gentle. Uh, this is my style. I don't respond well to someone who's going to shred everything, but I do want honest feedback. So if someone, a lot of writers will say to me and I usually say before I do consulting I say I want to make sure that you want honest feedback, Uh, certainly everyone has an opinion what uh, you will get from me is an informed opinion being that I, um, I do feel it is one of my strengths as we get older I think we come to know what some of our strengths are. Uh, my affinity for literature from a young age uh, to um, you know working in the business and working for a long time with writers and loving the process and that when you ask, as a writer, when you ask an opinion that you a lot of writers will say to me, "I want an honest. I really, don't be afraid. you can be brutal, etc. It's not my desire or style to be brutal because I don't like my teachers. I, I did not feel that's constructive, but I do feel that I also say to my clients, "I'm not doing you a favor." if i don't provide an honest assessment based on my experiences in the business based on my knowledge of how other industry executives respond to material it's not the only opinion certainly but it will be an informed opinion so i think that when writers are asking for feedback that they if someone's really like oh i loved everything i loved everything that they you say I don't want you to just say this to be nice. If you have something that you think is constructive and I can improve, I would really appreciate that. I would really value that.
1: Does it really matter if a protagonist is active or passive?
0: I th- I think it does. I think nobody wants to watch a passive character. And even in real life, if we I guess there are some exceptions like leaving Las Vegas, where you had a depressed alcoholic who, so that was his journey, and that's what the movie was about. And of course, it was based on a very well-known book. The, but even a movie like Zelig, where I guess it's a character who's passive, who's assuming other characters' personalities, that or other individuals' personalities, assuming their identities, that. He's actively doing that, but most cases, and in a certain way, I guess you could say, in leaving Las Vegas, the uh, Nicolas Cage character was, uh, even though he was sitting on a sofa most of the time, but he was pretty committed and actively pursuing drinking himself to death and dying um, in Las Vegas. He was committed to not leaving Las Vegas, I guess. Um, but I think that otherwise, it's it's just. Boring. And even in the writing of a script, it's best not to use passive verbs, such as, he is being, he is, he, uh, you always want to keep it active, like, he's walking. Uh, it's not like the sidewalks are passing him by. Uh, but I, I feel that you always want to have an active protagonist. Sometimes you get scripts that are where they'll change. Someone may change tenses. It, you, it always has to be active present tense. Talking again about like
1: getting too much advice to change a character, mm-hmm. even though it's sort of like your central journey and you're writing about it. Do you think people layer it with other parts of another character because it's too close to home? They don't want to totally write their story. But the mm-hmm. central message or value of the film is a certain way, but because they don't really want to have it be their own biopic really, that they pepper in these different things and it waters it down. So they make the protagonist a female when right. it's really a man's journey right. or a young man's coming of age yeah. story.
0: No, I think that can be and it's interesting because with the changing a protagonist from a male to female, I understand that. I mean if you take a movie like Speed. It did work that it was a female but you could have reversed the sexes and it could have worked. Uh, The movie that Sandra Bullock did with um, not too long ago it was originally I think written as a role for George Clooney and they changed it to a female. I'm not adverse to that at all and I've had instances where I might have um, where I've done that and uh, sometimes it might have been a white lead, and you can make it an African American character or a uh, Latin American character, and that's fine and that's fresh. Um, you know, to not have to. So there are times when it can be really, really great and improve a story, but it's when a person is compromising the the essence and spirit. Of what they are connecting with, and it's fine to. Um, I mean, I've done true stories where we couldn't use the actual characters' names, uh, so we might have changed the their profession. So, if one was a computer engineer, maybe we made him um, a real estate agent. Or if the story took place in Connecticut, we changed it to Colorado things like that are fine but it's you don't you want to always have a connection with the true essence and spirit of the story and a core. i go back to that word for me it's a core vision of something that moves you and and compels you and is a really a strong story that you want to tell and at the heart of it is usually a it might be an image that triggers something or usually a character with what I call a strong emotional want that I had mentioned to you, a a writer. We talk about that I feel like I'm always learning from respected uh, colleagues and associates and there's a screenwriter who I really, really respect and he was the one who would. we can talk about motivation. I love what his phrase was that every character that you become engaged with especially protagonist in almost every great film has this, a character with a very strong emotional want and need. And actually another book that I love, Stanislavski, um, An Actor Prepares. He gives backstory for what the actor needs to do before entering a scene. And he talks about a character having a super objective which is the grand overriding life objective and then the immediate objective. So maybe the big objective is, I want to be retired and live in the Bahamas. My immediate objective, I need to get this job promotion. Or, I mean, well, just from this, you could have different genres immediately. I can tell you that the different uh, immediate objective is that he wants to um, kill um, The man he works for, and get his money, and steal his money. So two totally different movies with when you change what the immediate objective is and the super objective.
1: Thinking too, when you talk about books, uh, an adaptation I love is White Oleander. Oh Oh, yeah, Janet. That was really good. Oh my gosh, amazing film, and and book as well. Um, If you were to change Alison Lohman's character to a male, it seems like then you'd have to change all of the foster parents. To men as well, because Mm -hmm. it was a it was
0: a a relationship between the mother and daughter, and and how toxic that was, and it does create different dynamics. I think also because that was based on source material, a really well respected book, uh, and a bestseller that you wouldn't change it, Um, and there probably wouldn't, and if it wasn't based on a best selling book. You could go other way, but they're two different stories. And I think again, whoever—if it was a screenwriter or the author—what is truest to what's getting you going? What is inspiring you? Is it you know dynamics between a mother and daughter are different than between a father and son? Um, so I think it's really connecting as a writer. When I say core vision, another uh, way to describe it is the source of inspiration. The thing that gets you really excited about the story? What is the journey you want to tell? Right,
1: and for the motivation of all those mothers, whether it was Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Mm -hmm. and then all of the, you know, Renee Zellweger had her own, um, you know, motivation, Mm -hmm. and and, and Robin Wright's character. So they all had these interesting Mm -hmm. motivations. Yeah, Yeah. very much so.
0: Yeah, and that's, I think, what's important for screenwriters to really, I think we can never take for granted. Not knowing our characters well enough. Now, if it's purely an action film like *A Speed*, it's not so important to the ride is the movie. Um, the or *The Mummy*, the original one. The uh, it's there are motivations clearly, and a strong plot. Uh, but it's really less about deep character development but anytime you're doing this generally speaking if it's a psychological thriller, uh, family drama, comedy, you need to uh, not take for granted that you can't know your characters and a, a lot of writers don't go through that step of really knowing them and immersing themselves in that character or characters. I mean, and it comes up with like, who are they? What you know? Where are they when the, the movie starts? Are they in a happy place? Are they in a sad place? Did they just break up with a boyfriend? Are they on top of the world? Did they just get fired? Um, the so uh, knowing those kinds of things, and I apply what Stanislavski said which is what is their super objective what do they want in life so to go through all of those things is there even if it's not in the script is there a pivotal thing that happened that damaged them Uh, so those types of things I usually give uh, clients I'm working with a character questionnaire to help um, unleash all those things about their character Uh, so because you can't really write from an abstract place. Just oh, he's a guy. Right, um, right. I like that the questionnaire. That's great.
1: How can a screenwriter create a hero
0: that we want to follow? I keep saying the same thing, but it's for me that you find, you start with a character as a really strong emotional want. And I feel like if we take any any successful film, critically acclaimed film. It's always a character that has that strong emotional want. Whether it's, I had mentioned with the wrestler that my upbringing, I have nothing in common with a, a wrestler. Uh, the, um, ooh, uh, not Boys Don't Cry, a Million Dollar yeah, Baby. baby. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything in common with a with the white trash girl who wants to box. But boy, did she have a want. Yeah. And so that's, and I don't mean to say that in a, I'm trying to say the opposite that, so I'm not trying to make a judgment or be snobby. I'm saying that a great film has a character with a strong emotional want that no matter what our upbringing, our race, we can identify and relate to um, that character. The, the protagonist in Barry Jenkins' film, Moonlight, Um, I don't know what it's like to grow up as a a young black gay man in Miami, but we can all relate to feeling like an outsider at some point in our lives, um, wanting to be accepted, um, having very extraordinarily difficult situations. And there was such beauty in the way this character was able to persevere and overcome. And then it was also told structurally in a very interesting manner. And again, there is an example where that didn't follow what a lot of people would say is a, you know, the classic Sid Field or Bob McKee structure. It was told almost like three um, more, I would say, almost not quite Faulkner, but there was a novelistic approach to it. I think you can break structure. Um, when, you're, when you understand it to begin with, and you're, hit, you're hitting everything else really right. So writing authentic characters, uh, compelling dialogue, compelling situations, and it is well-structured. So, but I, I do feel it's like tapping into that thing that we as humans want and can identify with, and what are universal flaws? That a character may have.
1: Switching gears just a tiny bit. Have you ever not taken on a project, and mm. for for what reasons?
0: All the time. I mean, most of the time, and that's the fact uh, that what most writers are faced with. That it is a game of mostly rejections. And I know as a producer, I feel like if I wind up optioning a project. Writers have been a lot of odds to have someone decide they want to option the project. I then have to try and go and sell it. I had a project once where it took me a year, and I, I sent it to every single it was network um, to like every single network. And this was a time when you had to wait. The protocol was you couldn't take it somewhere else until you heard back. Today you can do multiple submissions. Uh, but that was a protocol back then. And it was the last network that I took it to. And the head of the network, who's a very well respected industry individual, the executive showed us his comment. What they would do is the executives would, every month, they would gather the top tiers of projects that they've read and liked, and they would give it to their boss. He would read it on the weekend. Ours came back and we had been rejected like 12 places but I always knew it was a good story and a lot of the rejections were um, that it just doesn't fit into our mandate, we're not doing this type of story right now. And anyway, he wrote in the margin, this is a good story. So I know an agent who once said that all it takes is one yes. Now. It's also a fine balance because if you're getting no, 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 no consistently with feedback that like the feedback that I was getting wasn't this isn't a good story. It was this isn't the right project for us right now or we have something similar to this. If you're getting feedback where someone says and I've heard this quite a bit, um, I like the concept, I didn't love the execution. And I can elaborate on that or I, I really like the concept but I didn't love the protagonist. I didn't feel that character was developed enough. And that's why I'm very uh, tenacious when working with writers before taking it out because I know what the odds are. I mean obviously a lot of writers know the odds but uh, and a lot of writers will say, well I see stuff get made all the time that's not very good. We don't know the circumstances of how and why that project got made. If it went through too many revisions and it lost its center, it went through different regime changes, Uh, nobody starts out trying to make a bad movie. With the exception of one I can think of and takes pride in it's been a huge hit, an occult hit because there are two movies. I can reference one because it's out right now, The, um, uh, The Disaster Artist. Well, but even that guy didn't start out to make a bad movie, and it obviously developed a cult following because Mm of its uniqueness that way. But the um, you know no one when people say oh but there are writers who get stuff made and it's not very good. I feel that's such a a poor model to even reference because so should that be your model that like okay well. My movie doesn't have to be perfect, I don't care if it's that great, other people's can get made. No, my feeling is that you need to make sure that it's at the absolutely best level it can be and and, and if you do get consistent feedback where people are saying, I'm just not loving the character enough, and um, then I think you need to go back to your script and then talk to your buddies in the industry whose opinions you respect and say, do me a favor. Will you take a look at this again? And let me know what you think. Maybe I could make better. Maybe go into uh, workshop it. Uh, definitely do your research to see because you know which I think there are some workshops that are better than others, and you can do your due diligence by talking to fellow writers who maybe have taken a particular workshop, what they've gotten out of it, what the results have been like and or of course work with um, you know, a script consultant, other industry colleagues. Um, like I mentioned, assist, if, you, if you're starting out, you may know assistants who work for agents or production companies or studios and um, have them read it and give you feedback.
1: Wendy, we have a lot of screenwriters in their 20s mm-hmm. that watch our videos and they're just starting out and they're in an early stage of their writing careers. Is there any mm-hmm. advice you can give to them?
0: Oh sure, a lot. Um, one. I think one of the best tips is. Uh, I was uh, I heard uh, a female showrunner say, when she came out to L.A., she spent the first year reading every single pilot that had been picked up that she could get her hands on, and that could and also maybe reading pilots of series from a couple of years ago. I do feel and that's when I, I said, like Shakespeare, for me was one of my best teachers. Uh, just understanding how well defined his characters were, uh, the dialogue, and um, the the conflicts and the you know the characters' needs and wants and what gets in their way. And I mean the, the stakes. You don't get bigger <laughs> than Shakespeare with Macbeth or Hamlet and um, so uh, there are great teachers, and great, like Matthew Weiner, you can watch Mad Men. Absolutely, uh, you know, you can watch a lot of series. But there is something about seeing the written word. The other thing, as an exercise, and I think this is a very powerful exercise. It might not seem like fun, but it can be fun. Is to watch. If you're, I, I did this actually when I was in my 20s, starting out. Uh, officer and a gentleman and this is before you could download scripts on the internet. I did I watched the whole movie and I wrote down as I was watching it what each scene was. So I had to pause a lot but it what it does is it really helps you understand and get a feel for rhythm and structure almost through osmosis, through that process of doing it. And the point of doing it isn't so you can go and you're not plagiarizing or copying, it's to get you to, to just um, understand rhythms of scenes and how they flow from one to the next. And what and you, you can see when you're doing it, okay, where is the, what's the act one, the act one break? Usually it's supposed to be around page 27 in a feature. So you see where that kind of flows when you're copying you know a script Um, and you don't have to do every single line but it can be okay Richard Richard Gere is with his father they wake up right after they've had an evening of debauchery and hookers and Richard Gere is now off to, uh, um, to training camp in the military then the next scene, and I don't remember exactly but let's say the next scene is he's on a bus and we see exterior uh, the, the facility. Then next scene maybe we see Deborah Winger as a waitress. I don't remember everything so forgive me. But it also gets you into the understanding and the, the, that screenwriter is a wonderful screenwriter. The, it gets you into seeing how when I was talking about not uh, including the dull bits. You can see beautiful juxtapositions like he's off to the military and then maybe the next thing he's in line and being asked to salute and uh, it, it's just its a wonderful exercise. This woman who is, uh, became a successful writer in television she read *Pilot*. so if you feel like you want to be a half-hour person and if you want to do multicam and you feel like NBC, CBS, ABC style sitcoms are your thing which are multi versus single camera, which is more like Aziz Ansari um, uh, and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, Master of None, then get those scripts. Read them. See how they introduce the characters. See how distinct all the voices are. They're so distinct. And these will be some of your best teachers.
1: Continuing on with advice for mm-hmm. the, the 20-something-year-old writers that we get feedback from, I think you mentioned that you went to see the writer Jorge Luis Borges speak? Yes. And that he said, I'm finally getting oh. better and it was, he was yes. 80-some?
0: Yes, uh, <laughs> right. No, because this is something that happens a lot. Writers will say well, when will it be ready? When will it be ready? When, it's ready. It's ready. I mean, I have a client who I love dearly, and we worked very closely together. And I, many, many drafts ago, she said, "Okay, this is it. This is the final draft." And I'm like, "I would love for it to be the final draft. I don't want. It's not like. In, I mean, I do it with consulting, but it's not like I want my biggest bellywick, if you will, or heyday, is to have a really strong script." That I can take out to the market and get set up with a pr- production company, studio network, etc. And so I'm reading it, and she. One of the things we had changed the location from overseas to New York, and we changed one of the characters from uh, an Italian to a New York Italian, and she had changed his name. So I think he was Giovanni, and then he became Luca. So when I was reading that script, the character she she kept going back and forth with the name. And that's just a very simple fix. But you know, here's someone saying it's final and I want it to be final and it wasn't, you know, hundred percent perfect yet, just even on a very cosmetic level. So um the notion of and when you brought up um uh, Jorge Luis Borges that I was uh, in college and he came to our campus and spoke and he was in his I think he was about 82 and he was going blind and he said here I am and I'm going blind and I'm 82 and I feel like I am just now getting good at my craft and here was a man who received some of the highest literary honors you can get uh, and it was awe-inspiring and- when I see younger writers uh, saying, um, you know, well, it, it's done or it's good enough. For, and any writer at any age can really say that. I feel like anytime I've watched um, on some of the talk show interviews with uh, best selling book authors, amazing directors, screenwriters, very often when they speak, uh, they say, it's taken them seven years. So I feel like, and when I see someone like Borges speak the way he did, if people who are such masters, it's taken them like seven years or more, or in the case of Borges, a lifetime to just feel like he's getting good, then we need to relish, enjoy, soak up the process of continuing to get better and better and better. Um, so that's, and I, I mean, anyone we greatly respect, whether today if it's Aaron Sorkin or Jason Reitman, they all say that, you know, they go through multiple, I mean, Reitman, I think, is like gone through 30, 40 drafts on some of his projects. And with Aaron Sorkin, I don't remember how many like he does, but I also did hear him say once that it takes him, um, it takes him anywhere from a year to 18 months to deliver a first draft. He's turning over and over the characters, and so I feel like if these great masters who really have excelled in their fields in their craft, if it takes them so long, why do we think that if we're just starting out that we should be able to do it sooner? Um, and I'm all for if it can happen soon, great. But the process is the process.
1: Right. And Jason is of a generation where they want things faster. Yes. So that, that's very telling in that sense because I feel like now everything's so sped up right. and instantaneous that it, it heightens all that. Yeah. And we hear on Twitter and see all this stuff about this person's just been discovered, but we don't realize.
0: We don't realize. And um, I've heard also with some great writers being interviewed, you know, people say, oh, they just wrote in one or two drafts. And then when you hear them speak, they say, that it was they did multiple drafts. I just feel like basically there really aren't shortcuts. I do think there's an anomaly, maybe someone can write something and it just everything's aligned and the muse and the ability and it just flows out of you and I think that can happen, but it really is an anomaly. Most of the time there things require more and more refinement and craft.
1: Kind of goes back to what you said earlier about the female showrunner, Mm -hmm. who's achieved great success. But she says people want the outcome, Mm -hmm. but they probably wouldn't want to do all the hours and and all the probably late nights behind a computer, Mm -hmm. stressing over some little detail. Yeah, and I think that's a huge thing. People don't see some of that work that goes true, and and they just want the faster route. And it's human nature not to want to have to put in exactly. But um, it's true. This is a common question I yeah. ask, but it, it usually ends up having great results. And that is of your IMDb credits, which one, whether it was a short TV series, whatever, which one taught you the most and why? Without naming, of course, sure. the project. I,
0: I feel like each one has taught me, and it's really from the people that I worked with that I learned. So um, one of the things I feel like my first job I worked for a producer I felt was a master at cultivating interest in projects. Um, So he knew how to generate interest and position and I learned in cases where I might have missed out on a project by not being assertive enough. And I'd say one project which I sold and it was such a great high. I was it was at a time when I was told that it was at a particular network that they had spent their financing for the fiscal year uh, and we had an option on the book and it was about to be up and that also it was a period piece and they said we're not doing period, we're not doing period. And I wound up saying, but this reads to the president of the production company, this reads so hip, this reads so contemporary. Most women today would die to do what this girl did back then, and I, my boss, actually said to me after that, you know, be careful, you shouldn't um, be so boisterous, you know, with the president. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, I wound up speaking to the network to where we had a deal, and got the president of the company and her VPs all on board, and they wound up optioning the book and um, it was a series so there were going to be three books. Sadly there was a regime change um, after we started the process and we did get a first script and um, the new regime um, decided that they didn't want to do any period again and that happens in the business and it's unfortunate but it is part of the business and hopefully you just continue to build on the successes and you're always going to have failures. You learn from your failures. I mean in that case sometimes there are things outside of one's control. But what I learned there was to have the courage of my convictions. I remember there was an executive at ABC who had said to his group and they did really wonderful programming, if we're going to fail I want us to fail big because we tried not fail because we were scared. And if you look at any network and breakout shows they were taking risks and going against the grain. And whether it was married with children at the time X-Files was on there was nothing like that and then everybody wanted to copy and do something like X-Files. And and I remember the sale of X-Files was the head of the network saying to Chris Carter I just want you to do what you really want to do. So that was brave for the executive. In hindsight we can all say that's fine but he was really encouraging. The pure voice and creativity of that particular writer, and boy, when you, you know, can follow your vision and your passion, and you have combined with the talent to deliver, and the support, and the right studio behind, you can really deliver something that's iconic, and you know, becomes part of the our pop culture and everything. Uh, the going back to the um, so, what I had learned, so I really felt strongly because of that reward that I would always follow the courage of my convictions. So, I think it's really important to do that. With other movies, I would say I learned from a really intelligent boss, writer, director who's no longer with us that just not to have a lazy mind and never go for the easy solution. Uh, he was great at with development and when, whatever stories we had, and I learned so much from him. Was to really look at the authenticity of how a character would behave, and not just go for the obvious, easy, generic solution. So that really taught me, I think, to be diligent and try and find the unexpected behavior in characters. And um, so, anyway, to I could be here for a long time, but I have. I've learned from really. I think our greatest teachers are working with um, other people who who are good at what they do.
1: What does writing a marketable screenplay mean?
0: Great question. Probably one of my favorite questions. I often say that you can have a great idea, super high concept, and uh, I think I've referenced previously. I've heard story ideas. I go, oh my god, that is great. I want to option it before I even read it. And then I read it and it's not well executed. So if you have a great concept that's not well executed, chances are that it will not sell. If you have a high concept that is well executed, you have a much better chance of it getting sold. Conversely, you can have a project that is totally not high concept. But if it is beautifully executed uh, it then becomes marketable. So for example, if we take a movie like Juno and I'll define high concept. High concept is the hangover. A bunch of guys, you know from the movie poster, I mean a lot of people, I know a lot of your audience knows what high concept is but there are those who, who don't and it's terminology we use a lot and it's basically where the Concept is very big and immediately recognizable, like from a movie poster. So, the hangover, and it's the guys are, you know, we all know it's the hangover, and it's Vegas. You can tell from the movie poster, and they all look like they're a wreck. And it's uh, the 48 hours before Bachelor. Is to walk down the aisle at his bachelor party they go to Vegas and uh, his friends lose him and they have now four, and don't have any re- recollection of what happened the night before and have 48 hours to find him before the wedding. Uh, that's one example of big, con- uh, big concept. Speed is a big concept. Anything that's based on a brand like Transformers that has an immediately recognizable built-in audience brand value. So the opposite of that would be a movie like Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, in fact, most of the movies that win the Oscars are not high concept. Um, Slumdog Millionaire, Million Dollar Baby. Okay, if you were to pitch this, I'm going to do a, you know, not justice to the movie, but if you think about it like trying to get a studio to um, this is a story about a girl who comes from a trailer park and she wants to be a boxer and she's mentored by this Older dude, and um, she ends up getting um, injuring herself to the point where she becomes paralyzed on the way down, and she uh, paralyzed from the waist down, and basically asks him as an act of kindness to um, do euthanasia. So she does. Okay, who would buy that? Um, You know, Slumdog Millionaire. This is was a great story, great movie. Um, No known act American actor. But you did have a, a an A-list director, Danny Boyle, so that is what definitely helped get it made, and it was also based on a book, um, uh, Sling Blade, another one, magnificently written script. And some of these movies would definitely be harder to get done today. But um, the uh, you take Juno. You, you know family drama teenage girl gets pregnant I mean really that used to be like an after-school special or uh, in no disrespect um, you know more of a TV movie than a feature that would build such a big following uh, this year Ladybird. Bird um, you know that's not a high concept rite of passage with the young girl and but it was so well written and it resonated so much uh, with people, the mother-daughter relationship, the notion of growing up in a small town. and So the what makes a script marketable? The script like Juno and um, with Lady Bird, the, the quality of the writing, the freshness of the characters, the truthfulness of the characters, that then becomes marketable. So that comes down to me saying, r- write your best work. Uh, I don't know any executives. Other people may. I don't know any executives who have optioned a script if they didn't care for the dialogue, the writing. They didn't think it was. I mean, structure maybe is the least offensive. Um, you know, it uh, can be a good idea, and maybe the structure is not great, but they're the. The characters are compelling, the situation's compelling, and the dialogue is good. And I just don't know anyone who buys scripts if those elements aren't there. So, therefore, I think if you are going to make a profession as a screenwriter, it's not an easy profession at all. You have to roll up your sleeves and really get in there. And I, I read, um, I mean, I'm working right now with someone who just graduated from film school and um, it's quite his his writings were really good um, there are some elements that i think needed to be much more pronounced uh, what the underlying theme is and the purpose of the journey and some things that didn't track with the characters but there's a lot of talent there but i didn't think it's ready quite to take out yet uh, but he's doing some work now and um, he'll get there i mean th- there's there's a there's a lot of talent, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of writing that really isn't very strong. And I think the biggest death to a writer is to um, is to not be able to take notes well. And I don't mean just any notes. Um, to be open to constructive feedback and um, to want to put in their dues. So I think that's the biggest killer as well as um, um, trying to please too many people and not listening to your own inner voice. And I just say in terms of marketability, what gets agents' attention, uh, producers, studio networks is that is a, you'll hear a strong voice, that there's something really fresh about a person has a point of view and that the character writing… the Quentin Tarantino is such a strong voice, Um, and I would say that Greta Gerwig, you know, has a strong voice, and um, we could go on, but um, uh, I can't think of their names, but yeah.
1: And, and even going back to Lady Bird, just just briefly, we went to see The Post, and unfortunately, the movie didn't play, so we all had to leave the mm. theater. But I talked oh. to a man who was maybe in his late fifties, and he said he loved mm. Lady Bird. So here's someone that it's not even really you would think that wouldn't be the audience right. for it. But he, he said, and he was recommending it to the people he was mm. with, and we were kind of talking about right. it. So you can see how he somehow resonated right. with that voice.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's a great example. The truthfulness of that mother daughter relationship, which wasn't pretty, um, you know, how they got in each other's spaces and talked to each other, but it was truthful. And we know that they, they did love each other each other and uh, you know so touching towards the latter part of the movie when um, the mother who was really kind of you know really tough with her daughter and the daughter didn't feel like she really loved her even liked her and then we saw that she was um, trying to write a letter to her and crumbled it up like 30 times that's a that's another form of love versus this would be the boring way of doing it and not so truthful to the human experience would be well, you know, I love you. Maybe I'm hard on you, but maybe I'm doing it for your own good or maybe I have my own issues. So I'm not really able to love that well versus the simple, beautiful act that she was crumpling up letters because she wanted to find the right words and couldn't. That says so much more than anything that's on the nose and obvious in right, the whole part
1: of, of coming from a, a, a smaller town even though it's California's capital but mm-hmm. there is a, a small town field Sacramento for anybody mm-hmm. who's driven through it and and wanting to like really reinvent herself yes you know she didn't want to go by right. her given name right. she wanted to be a writer on the East Coast right, right. it wasn't okay to, to be a writer from California mm-hmm. you know um, and and just wanting to reinvent herself right. and I think everyone can identify with
0: versus that. you know no and so and that's just really wonderful writing. Versus, I want to, I want to be a writer. I'm tired of being in the small town. I want to reinvent myself. You know. Um, so that's that's what all the that's such a good example of why you know. Because some people say, "When I get the feedback about not to write expositionally, what do you mean?" What people can talk about, like what you don't like people to be direct. Sure, there's a time and place, and sometimes people are direct, but most of the time they're circling, trying to figure out their lives, who they are, and so on. And that was a very beautiful example of that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
1: So we've had a good what, two and a half, three hours here. Sometimes I'm in a time warp when I do these interviews, but we've gotten incredibly valuable information, Wendy. As we wrap up, I would love to hear a success story. Um, And if you could just do us a favor, maybe just leave out identifying information. That's kind of a rule we have here. Sure. Okay. Film Courage.
0: Okay. So let's see. I think well, there are a couple. One would be from something that was quite a while ago that I had read a uh, a a play by a writer, and I was so enamored of the story. it was made and it was on CBS and it was called. It wound up being called Sally Hemmings and American Scandal. And what I love about the story is that she had written it and I had first found out about it. I think it was either seven or nine years before it got made. And all I'll say is that the stars were aligned and it was the fact that um, what happened was I came close to selling it within the first two years that I had the project that um, was under option. I think when I was at First Entertainment, and came close but didn't sell it. And then one day, the writer and I read in the trades that Merchant Ivory had sold a movie called Jefferson in Paris with Nick Nolte. And the two of us, and this happens in the business, and it it invariably—I mean, it will—it happens to everyone. And right now, I have uh, two projects actually where there are other competing projects in the marketplace, and we're trying to get ours done first. but anyway, so the writer and I we were quite despondent and then was like, all right, life goes on and one foot in front of the other and you keep, you know, what's the next project and you put your focus there. But I never forgot how much I loved that script. And so Merchant Ivory Movie was made, and two years later, I felt like I would hear opportunities in network television where they were interested in doing they were doing period pieces and you would haul me which was a big um, producer at the time doing lots of period films for network. And so every couple of years I would think maybe there's a different audience that we could get and reach with you know, TV and I would seek opportunities and I would call up the writer and I would say, is that script still available? And she would say yes and one of those times seven years later. She said, yes, as a matter of fact, um, such-and-such actress, I was having uh, lunch with her manager and we talked about it and she might be interested in playing the role. So I wound up calling up CBS and saying, we don't have a commitment, but we have preliminary interest from so-and-so. And And she said, we'll send it over. And it was originally written as a two-hour movie. And the network came back and said, you know what? We think we might be interested in turning it into a mini-series but instead of making it so much about Thomas Jefferson we'd like to make it more, much more Sally Hemings' point of view. So we did, we rolled up our sleeves, we spent a month working with her uh, preparing an outline to bring to the network so we could show what the end of night one was that would ensure people there was enough of a cliffhanger that people would come back for night two so we could justify yes this is enough material for a miniseries. And the day we wind up going in to pitch two days before it wound up hitting front page of New York Times, Wall Street Journal, I think Time magazine that they had done tests finally conclusively with Thomas Jefferson and concluded from the DNA that he in fact did have a long-term relationship with Sally Hemings and that they did have five children together. So all of our competitors were saying, oh my God, you guys were so smart to be on it and in the network two days after. Little did they know that this was, had started about nine years earlier. And as uh, some, I'm sure a lot of us have heard this expression, but it is a very good one that uh, success is when preparedness meets opportunity. So if we didn't have, the, if I hadn't fallen in love with this piece, if the writer hadn't written this wonderful piece, if in fact um, I, I hadn't like, continued every two years to inquire and see if there was a new opportunity. Uh, then uh, you know it w- and if we didn't do our homework to really we spent a month preparing to go in. And I've seen very good writers um, who have blown deals when they don't prepare enough. You said something that caught my ear, and I
1: just wanted mm-hmm. to follow up. And that is, you've seen writers blow a deal because they weren't prepared. Mm-hmm. So, are they not prepared to know what the the genre that this network is is used to dealing
0: with? Actually, it's I'd say more with um, sometimes if you have a script, it can be, sell itself. But other times, um, maybe you have a pitch. I mean, I've seen very, very like established writers. Go in a room, and because they haven't prepared the pitch really well, and it kind of meanders, um, and it could be a really good story, but it I, I really am a big advocate of preparing, and I I'm reminded of uh, seeing um, a lot of people probably don't know Whippy Goldberg when she started out. She was an absolutely brilliant comedian, and. When I, I saw her at a charity event, and man, she killed it on stage. And for her to be, there's no question that gen, certain geniuses in comedy are great mm-hmm. ad libbing and this and that, but they're also, for her to be, uh, and with most of the great comics, they look so spontaneous, they work their butts off rehearsing and rehearsing to be able to deliver. So smoothly. So, um, I do think it's important for um, is if you're going to be pitching a project to, to be prepared. And that's what we as producers had to do when we were um, pitching the Sally Hemings piece. And it's what I had to do all the time. And when I'm working with writers and we're going to go in and pitch, is, you know, we have to do the work.
1: Why do you think an established writer wouldn't prepare a pitch like that?
0: I think maybe took for granted or that had an attitude of um, well I'll just wing it and these are people who are very articulate but I also would say the times have really changed where I know like a former boss of mine the network used to just go to him and say why don't you do a project about such and such topic and what now It it just doesn't. It just doesn't work like that. Very established writers need to also like. Even if you're, I'm sure, and I can't speak for him, but like Ryan Murphy, when he sells one of his projects, I'm sure that he has to at some point tell the network what they're going to be seeing per hour, per you know, the first hour, the first night of a miniseries. we're going to be covering such and such part of the OJ trial. and then um, you're going to talk about your approach. It's um, most so I, I think that maybe um, taking for granted or assuming, well, I'll just wing it or ad-lib bit, but I think um, it's you need to prepare. And then the
1: packaging, again, is, is something you said people are looking at, so that means, Having talent attached, right. having crew attached.
0: Right. So for example, House of Cars when it sold to Netflix, you had David Fincher, one of the preeminent contemporary directors um, who hadn't yet done series that was really attractive. It was also, material was based on a book and a hit series in the UK. Um, Kevin Spacey who was a big star uh, at the time um, was also attached so that's like an ideal Package. A lot of um, the marvelous Mrs. Mazel, that's the uh, writing team that did The Gilmore Girls, which was very successful um, in its original form, and then when it came back to Netflix, was also very successful. So they knew that they had proven entities with a strong voice and who can deliver really a successful show with really well drawn characters and situations consistently. So that's kind of like uh, sort of there's some element that's uh, proven entity and or really appealing. It could be someone who has just done um, a movie at Sundance that garnered a lot of attention, uh, and they come in. And again, it's a thing about recognizing that someone has a strong voice, and it's harder to break into without. you know having that first like when if you've already won some award at Sundance yes it's easier to get Netflix attention but how do you get that first award at Sundance? It's because you have um, there's something fresh in your material. Yeah, yeah. and I, I remember just a series at HBO where uh, they wound up hiring uh, completely unestablished writers and I'm trying to think of the name of the show but um, they had written a play that wasn't even produced but they fell in love with the writing and their voice and then they, they the the these um this writing team pitched uh the series and it became a, like it had um i think five seasons on hbo Wendy, in hearing what
1: packaging means, I think it sounds great if you're established, but for a new writer, is that something they should even be worried about, thinking about, striving for?
0: I think that, again, the first thing a new writer should concern themselves with is writing a really, really good script. Uh, I do think, and I'm sure there are producers also who, you know, come to Film Courage. Uh, I feel like when I hear a story, so if someone, I have a, like a writer that I've been working with who uh, is also a documentary filmmaker and he did a story and he showed me a few clips and I was like, oh my God, this is so moving, this is, this is an amazing story. And immediately I could see that the character whose story this was based on would be a great role to attract a leading actor. So immediately I'm thinking… Um, thinking big names. Now that then helps me sell it and promote it if I like let's say call CAA and I say I create a good compelling log line and I say and it's a great vehicle for a leading actor and I might include some prototypes. And I go, Great, send that over. Because everybody is usually there are exceptions, but looking for something that's going to attract a star, whether it's um a female leading actress or a male leading actor, and I felt that this and true stories very often is a really good source to attract a leading actor. So I think if I mean the first priority is writing a good story. Um, I think with screenwriters some and some screenwriters that I know. They definitely think of a prototype when they're writing it. Like they might hear, "Was well, writing it." I see Marissa Tomei in the role, and that can help their process. Um, I feel anyone who gets too attached to the outcome before you've done the process is probably not a good way to go. Um, the with in the cases, let's say more with producers or if you're a writer and you don't yet have a a script on a particular subject, but you've optioned a true story or maybe they've written an article that appears in a magazine and it can tell itself because there have been stories optioned or turned into movies from newspaper articles. I think Boys Don't Cry, I mean, we know it was a true story. The first time I became aware of it, I actually had read it in a magazine and I wanted to option. I tried to get the rights and sell it, uh, and I was not able to. At the time, I was primarily focused on network, and it was a little too edgy for a regular network. Anyway, she. Um, but that 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 was did come from an article, as well as I said, a true story. Uh, Argo was a true story. Also, was an article which I think may have been the jumping off point for the. Uh, capturing the imagination of Clooney uh, anytime if you have something that's an article uh, and if it's a true story and you can it, it just it, it, you can you can sell true stories very often without having a script yet so if you're a screenwriter that is something to think about um, if there's a, a true story that you like and you might think oh gee this is a could be a great vehicle for you know, any number of young actresses or offers a great role for male Lead in his 40s. Um, so I think it's always wise to think about it, but not the cart before the horse where that becomes necessarily the dominant idea. Uh, but in the case of, let's say, if a writer or producer has optioned the rights to a true story, then they would go out and start trying to package. So it would be about trying to get it in the hands of a production company that has greater access and leverage and ability to reach out to agents to attach an actor, director, and so on. The also uh, they can try to get to an agent. I do coaching with uh, with those who are not represented to help them get through the gatekeepers and through certain. Bypass certain industry protocols in order to get their material seen. Uh, there's ways that you can pitch uh, that can entice someone, even if you don't yet have an agent. So does does that answer the question about like packaging?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, um,
0: yeah, I would say generally, ideally, you if you can get it to a production company, they are going to. Be in a better position to try to attach those key elements.
1: And so if someone says, well, you know, we don't take unsolicited material, then doing it through someone like you who could help kind of procure that, or also saying, well, then what if we do? What did you say that? Oh, uh, that um, they say
0: we don't take unsolicited material. That they uh, the writer producer can say all right well uh, can I sign a submission release form can you send that to me and then they should show it to their entertainment attorney right a lot of writers don't like to sign them but it is an industry standard if you're not represented and um, it's and that's why you should have an attorney take a look but. Um, it is it is fairly standard, but I do understand why it's a catch twenty two. Right, so, absolutely. Yeah, because if they don't do it, they might not be able to submit their project. And I know for myself, sometimes I've had to do them, and there's some depending on the language that I won't sign, mm-hmm. and others that I will.
1: And that's for the attorney to review. Yes. You can't just go online. And, and also, and, just
0: for me, because I'm not an entertainment attorney, so I'm not telling someone. Oh, you know, go do this definitively, they should go see an an expert in that field unless they're themselves very experienced at reading those kinds of documents. But generally, yes, have an entertainment attorney look.